Let's hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I really want to kind of take a, bit, a, a step into an overview of what's happening here. We'll look more specifically next week at some of the things that are going on with the armor. I just realized that there was no way that we were going to talk about this whole passage, which I think Marty at one point gave me a book that had about 600 or 800 pages on just this section of Scripture. I'm sorry to say or maybe grateful to say I have not read that book, um, but nevertheless, just the fact that someone could write that many pages tells you there's a lot here and a lot to be discussed. So I want to um, begin by just saying that what is happening here at the very end of Ephesians 6 is that Paul's doing two things. We see this going on. One is, is that we see we're coming to the end of the whole of Ephesians. And so he's beginning to wrap things up. And if you were to go back, and I encourage you to do this, even this afternoon... And look at all the words that are used in this armor and how that actually is seen in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You see all this language and Paul's beginning to wrap it all up into these final words. More specifically, he's wrapping up 4.1 where he there said, I'm in chains, I'm a slave of the gospel He's talking about them living up to their call. They're called out ones, and they're supposed to live in a manner worthy of their call. And now he's coming to the end of that and wrapping all that up and saying, now in light of all that I've told you, here's what needs to happen. And so Paul, in this discussion now, is wrapping up the letter and saying, look, here's everything I've had to say to you, Ephesians. And I want to again remind you that Ephesians was a letter that was written to be a circular letter. Even though it's titled the Ephesians, it actually was supposed to go around a whole circle of churches. So Paul is in some ways writing his magnum opus to the churches. This is one of the last letters he wrote. And he's writing it to these people. And he's saying... This is what needs to happen in your lives. This is who you need to be. This is what you need to see that God has done for you in Christ. And as we come to the end then, he's telling them, wrapping all that up and saying, here's what you need to focus on. So I want to look at three points this morning in light of the power of the gospel. The enemy of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, 
And then we're going to talk about the power of the gospel. And I'm going to say that lots of times I go right down the text and we'll look at the first section of the verses, but right now I'm going to start mixing things up a little bit because I really want you to see what Paul is saying in the big picture. That way next week we can come back and look a little more in detail with what he's saying specifically they need to think about. The first thing I want to say when we look at the enemy of the gospel is this. Evil is real. Now, the interesting thing for those of you that watched some form of news channel yesterday, if you watched Barack Obama and um, McCain, John McCain, being interviewed from the Saddleback Church, you, it, one of the questions that Rick Warren asked them was, how should we handle evil? Now, that's a fascinating question to ask to political leaders. Because really that one simple little question got at a whole root of, you could have said, I don't believe in evil, therefore we ought to just ignore people who talk about evil. Or they could have said, I think he gave a whole list, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the whole list of answers he gave them. But I think for the most part, both of them said, evil's something we have to deal with. You can't just let it go unchecked. Now that's significant. I'm a little bit skeptical of most politicians, so I won't say that it's super significant, but it is significant that both of these men felt like that we should do something about evil, that evil was real. They acknowledged the fact that at least they recognized whether they personally believe evil is real, they believe the American people believe evil is real. And I'm going to contend with you that if Americans do believe evil is real, it is because of the fact that scriptures tell us that evil is real and that's still, by God's grace, somewhat embedded within our culture. But whether or not it's embedded there or not, men and women, evil is real. And we have to own up to that. We have to take it that seriously. There's a tendency within Christian circles to do one of two things. There's been a tendency among some to ignore evil, to see evil just as, as basically socioeconomic issues we have to deal with, or to merely see evil as just human sin. That's what evil is, people doing bad things, but not seeing evil behind all of this. There's been other people, and my wife and I grew up in a tradition where literally demons were behind every rock, under every rock, behind every tree, and every time you moved, you were, you know, a demon was after you. And, and so, you know, you basically were praying constantly, Lord, I know I'm under spiritual attack at every turn. The problem is we may have been under spiritual attack, but the ideology that was being communicated to us, I think, was faulty. But what I want you to see here is this, that within our world, evil exists. How do I know that? Because Paul tells me so. Peter tells me so. Jesus tells me so. They hate me. They will hate you. Why? Because there's evil in the world. Now, evil is embodied in a particular group of persons, I'll use the term persons, basically in Satan, the devil, as we're told in this, but also, what is he going to say? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now what that tells us then is this, that it's not enough to say the devil's behind all this, he certainly is, but there's obvious that he is not alone. 
And what this begins to open up for us is an understanding that within our world, in our society, that what lies behind it are forces which hate God, hate His creation, want to warp it, misuse it, abuse it, exploit it, do anything they can to do to deface the glory and the goodness of God. That's what they're up to. Now we have to come to terms with this because this begins to start to help the church get its hands around part of the reason why we're here. It's not to ignore the reality of the defamation of beauty, the defamation of human beings. We must care. Do you understand how this begins to inform us as to what's going on? It's not just that people are dumb and stupid, so they do dumb and stupid things. Certainly it's their sin. Certainly they are sinners. Certainly within their hearts, as Paul's already told us, we were all enemies of God. We were all children of wrath. We were all striving apart from God coming and saving us. But do you understand that with all that, there's something sinister that's seeking to manipulate the circumstances in such a way to make your sinful propensities even more prolific. I had a professor one time say, and if you go back in, in the first part of Ephesians, you'll, you'll know that it tells us that Christ has defeated, he sits over all these rulers and authorities, and so he said, you know, here's the point we need to understand with what Jesus did. For those of you that are World War II vets or else you know a little bit about World War II, you know that V-Day did not come when D-Day came. D-Day, the defeat, the, the great impact that happened there, but we didn't secure victory till a, a time off. There were still skirmishes and battles going on. There still was things to be dealt with. And in many ways, that's what's going on. D-Day's been secured. There's no doubt that what's going to happen, there is no doubt that all that Christ has promised us is going to take place, but it hasn't come into its fullness yet. And see, what Paul is laying out for the believer is this, that while Satan is a defeated foe, he's a wounded critter. Wounded critters are mean and vicious. And they will do anything they can to take down as many as they can. Especially if they realize that their defeat is imminent and sure. And that's exactly what we see going on. C.S. Lewis has done us a great service in writing screw tape letters. He's also done us a great service in writing the trilogy, the, the space trilogy, which I highly encourage you to read. My son just got through reading um, the first of the series, Out of the Silent Planet. And I love the way Lewis talks about the devil. He calls him the bent one. And that all of those on planet Earth, the silent planet, are bent because of the bent one. He's not like the other hosts of the heavens that guard Venus and Mars and Jupiter and all these other places. Earth has defected from the great one from the Holy One, from the Righteous One. And the forces that lie behind the Bent One are using the culture and the societies 
and science and technology for evil purposes. Not because culture is bad. Not because science is bad. Not because technology is bad. But the forces behind it strive to use those things to twist and contort. Now, do you begin to understand in some ways how the kingdom advances? God cast us out into all those fields to be light. Do you see that? That's why we need people who study science who are Christians, who are thoroughly Christian and thoroughly committed to understanding and knowing God's world better. I doubt there's very many people in this room that aren't thankful, at least at this point, that they have a computer. If you've ever broken down and you had at least a few bars and you needed to call somebody at night, you were thankful that you had a cell phone. Granted, you know, I, I still have people that tell me, well, back in my day, you know, you just you got out and you fixed your car. And I said, back in your day, you could get out and fix your car. <laughs> Sorry, when I look at car, when I open that hood now, I'm like going, I hadn't got a clue. I just take it to them. I think that's kind of why they've designed them that way. But nevertheless, there was a day when you just could open up that F-150 and go to town on it and get it fixed. But that's not the truth anymore. The point is, these things aren't necessarily bad. Technology is not bad, but we need Christians out there thinking about it. In the health field, all those things. Because why? Because do you understand that evil is striving to use those things? <laughs> Satan is striving to use those things to deface the image of God in human beings and to keep people from really trusting and believing the promises of God found in Christ. That's his aim. That's his angle. That's his goal. Evil is real. He even works through religion. He even works through religion. Now, you might say, well, when did this take place? Well, it's been going on throughout history. See, what we need to do when we read our Bibles, when we go back to Genesis and we start to read, what we need to see is this is a record of Satan's attempt to thwart God and God's great declaration, you can't thwart me. See, that's what you see throughout the Scriptures, right? For those of you that don't know, if you go and read the the book of Exodus, and you see what's happening there. I mean, we know the fall. We know Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil as he t used part of God's good creation to deceive them. They fell. We know that all the way through, we know that what happens with Abraham. We know that God has to rescue Abraham from giving his wife Sarah to Abimelech, giving his wife Sarah to Pharaoh, which would have polluted the line, which would have ended the coming of the promised one. All the way through the Scriptures, we get to Exodus and what happens? The Egyptians. You know what Pharaoh had right in the center of his head on his crown? Have you ever seen it? Discovery Channel. It's a wonderful thing. Had a big serpent right in the middle of his forehead. Think that's a coincidence? No. Noah, Noah cursed Canaan. You do realize that Mitzrayim, Egypt, in the Old Testament was a descendant of, Cain, of Canaan, the enemies of the descendants of God. This goes all the way through the Scriptures. God rescues them from that. We see what happens in the book of Judges where the people are defecting from God and His ways and God continuously comes and delivers them and delivers them and delivers and maintains a people all the way through 
so that a Messiah might be born and that we might be redeemed. But you realize over and over and over again, Satan sought to thwart the people of God. The whole book of Esther is premised on this. That's the whole point of Esther. If you ever read Esther and go, why is it in the Bible? It's to show forth the reality that Satan will use any means to destroy God and his seed, and God will not be thwarted. And that's where we come then to understanding the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to enable God's people to stand. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. The promise of the coming one enabled the people to stand. The reality of the one who has come enables us to stand. That's Paul's whole point. Remember what he said earlier on in Ephesians. You all you Gentiles were cut off from the promises of God. You weren't part of all of these things. But now you've been grafted in. You've become a part of the purpose of the gospel was to draw people from every nation and tongue, every ethnicity, every culture, every political view, and to draw them into one people, the people of God. The people who've been redeemed by His grace. Not because of what anything they've done, but because of everything that Christ has done. See, the purpose of the gospel, then, the way Paul writes it here, is that we would be able to stand. Four times he uses that language. Stand. So that you'll be able to stand. So that you can withstand. Because what's going on there is this. That Satan continuously brings attacks against God's people. He is relentless. Now, I never want you to start building a theology which says the devil made me do it. That's horrible theology. And please never let it be said about people at Desert Springs that they say the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do it. You're a sinner and you chose to do it. Or you chose not to do it. But the point we need to understand is, is that Satan is striving to give you every opportunity to do it, to manipulate the circumstances, to set things up. And God gives you the opportunity to stand. Once again, we find ourselves in some ways just like Adam and Eve, don't we? Stand. I've stacked everything in your favor to stand, so stand. Everything's in your favor. Everything. I've already won the battle for you. I've clothed you in my armor. I've done all these things for you. Put it on and stand. And that's what Paul is saying here. The purpose is that we would stand and do what? Well, he told us earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 that all of this he did so that we would be to the praise of his glory. So that he would be praised. So that people would say, look at what God has done. And do you begin to understand how we ought to live as God's people in such a way that people look and say, look at what God has done. That's why sometimes we're so amazed when we look at somebody who lives so wretchedly for a great portion of their life and God hauls them out of that dump of life and literally before our eyes resurrects them into this whole other person, transforms them, and we just stand back and go, that's incredible. See, we're kind of slow-witted, so we need God to do those kind of things, even though men and women, those of you who really know your own hearts, know 
that even if by God's grace you were born into a Christian home, grew up around people who taught you the truth of the gospel, your heart was a trash dump apart from Christ. You would have done every wicked thing given before you had God not spared you from it through circumstances which He controlled. But we are thankful that He does redeem people who did not grow up with that benefit because it reminds us of how amazing His grace is, how powerful the gospel is, that it is able to do that. The other thing that we were told in Ephesians is that it was to display His wisdom in His church, that we're this multifaceted, united group that is joined together so that people look and say, how did all of them get together? See, there's almost something captivating about a parking lot that has Obama stickers and McCain stickers. And I saw a car yesterday driving around and said, it's still not too late to vote for Ron Paul. <laughs> I guess that's for, for, for those people who are still going, can we have a do-over? That's what my wife keeps saying about the two, the two candidates we have. She says, can we have a do-over? Can, can we have another choice? So the point I'm trying to get you to see here is, is that there's something almost awesome about that. That you would have a parking lot full of people who say, that Jesus is more important than anything else. More important than anything else. And that the profound reality of what Christ has done is able to unite people who may differ on a variety of issues. But on that issue, they are sure. On that issue, they are secure. And obviously we hope that on that issue, we see that it begins to change and transform how we think about all these other issues. But that aside, the point is, is that when you begin to see how the church begins to show this multicultural, multi-ethnic variety, what you begin to see is people going, how does that happen? That's not normal. That's not how people are supposed to operate. This group of people stays with their people and this group of people stays with their people and this culture is proud of their heritage and so they do things into their... And that's how it's supposed to work. So you see how the church just becomes this incredible place where God displays His wisdom and says, I made all people of all skin tones, of all cultures. My hand is in all of those things. And they're all my people, and I'm drawing them to myself. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. I think that pretty much covers it. Will be in heaven singing the praise of God. That is the purpose of the gospel. Now, you might say, that sounds awesome, Dennis. That's incredible. We can stand against Satan. We can do all those things. Okay, what's the power? Well, let's go back up to 10, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, we've already established all the way through this text that Lord is connected with Jesus Christ. So what this is saying to us is, the strength, the power of the gospel lies in the person of Jesus Christ. That if you know Him, if you're connected with Him, you have strength. Now, notice when Paul uses this language, for those of you that know Joshua chapter 1, what do we know that is said there? What is told to Joshua? Joshua, Moses is dead. So what do you need to do? Remember my promises and be strong and courageous. Have I not told you? I'm going to do everything I promised that I would do. Through you now. 
Because Moses may be dead, but I'm not. And you may die, but I'll continue on. The promises will not die because I cannot die. Do you see that? God swears by Himself because there's nothing greater to swear by than Himself. And the promises press forward. And see, here's the promise in Joshua, or the connection to Joshua. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Stand firm in the land. Stand firm in the land. Be a light. Be a testimony. You and this people. Be strong and courageous because I stand behind you. And see how Paul here in Ephesians says the same thing to us this side of the cross. Stand in the strength of the Lord. And if anything, we should stand with greater conviction because what do we see that they couldn't? Everything that God has done in Christ. They didn't see all this. Peter tells us that they strained, everyone strained to look forward. Even angels were straining to look forward in redemptive history to see what would happen. But all of it was written and saved for us who now know who Christ is. Who now see what God could do through the foolishness of the cross. And that's where we come now to this place where we see that what's happening here is, is this warrior, Jesus, stands over His people and says, do not fear. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is looking out over the city. He's feeling overwhelmed over this, this task of going to battle against these Canaanites who are giants in the land. And the, the, the Israelites say, we're like grasshoppers in their presence. They're little shrimps against these great, mighty people with their walled cities and these people who haven't been trained for warfare. They've been slaves for 430 years in Egypt. Are supposed to go and defeat these vast armies with chariots and with superior weapons and with walls. And, and so... Joshua goes out and he meets this warrior. And he asks the warrior, this takes some chutzpah on Joshua's part, whose side are you on? And it's incredible what that warrior says. I'm on the Lord's side. The issue here is not which side am I on. The real issue here, Joshua, is whose side are you on? And do you see that that same warrior that Isaiah begins to describe as well in multiple parts of Isaiah, this warrior who clads on this armor, the same armor that Paul's telling us to put on, is none other than Christ Himself, who basically says, I give my armor to you. Put it on. So that you might stand. Do you see how sweet and tender Jesus is? It's not, go out there and stand, and I'll stand behind you. Sure, go out there and get them. No, He basically sets before us His own armor, which enabled Him to defeat all these foes and says, put on the armor and stand. Stand with Me. Be with Me. I'm defending you. I'm your strength. I'm your rear guard. I'm your front assault. I'm the side wings of your attack. Whether Satan tries to shoot his darts from afar or he tries to come in close to wrestle you down, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Stand firm in the strength of 
my might. In conclusion, then, I want to say a couple of things to us that hopefully this begins to help us. If we really begin to see the hope of the gospel, what is the gospel? It's simply this, that Jesus Christ came, the God of the universe came to become a man, lived a perfect life that no one in this room can live, died a death that we all deserved. And as Ephesians tells us, God demonstrated His power in that He raised Him up from the dead and seated Him at the right hand where He now sits over all these things that are going on. And if you put your faith in that person, Jesus, who has done all these things, then these are, there are things that should start to take place in us. I mentioned them earlier when I talked about what we are striving to be as a church, and I want to just take a few moments to talk about what that should work in here. If you really do believe the gospel, if you're putting your hope in Jesus, these are things that should be, and I would say must be true of you in some measure, no matter how small. The first one is we're called, we're on a mission. We're on a mission. We're called to be missional people. Jesus came to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. What does Paul ask these Ephesians to pray for him for? Pray for me since I'm over here in prison. I'm praying for you. You pray for me that I'll continue even in my chains to be a testimony of Christ's incredible salvation so that others around me might be saved. We just read in Acts what happened there as the disciples and the apostles were being faithful as they raised up these men that ultimately formed what we know as a diaconate and were caring for people. God continued to add to their number. People continued. God desires to save people. And I don't know why He chose to use us. I don't know why He called us into that kind of service. Because quite frankly, it'd be a whole lot easier for God just to go and everybody be saved. But He is delighted to use us. And the point here is the reason why He saved us is so that we would go out and declare by our lives and by our mouths that He is awesome, that He is great, that His salvation is real, and that our lives will never be the same because we've come to know Him. The second thing that this has to do is relational. We're being called into a relationship. Paul spent the whole book of Ephesians saying, you've been united into one. You who were all over the place, you who were divided, were all brought into being one. And do you begin to understand how this starts to make it look rather foolish when the church gets all bit out of shape about a lot of the stuff we get a bit out of shape about? When we've got an enemy who is plotting our demise every day, every moment, every second... And we're worried about whether we have pews or chairs. We're worried about what color the carpet is. We're worried about whether the fans are running this way or that way. We're worried about if we have a cross back here or we don't have a cross back here. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people get upset about and the devil wants to kill you. He wants to wipe you out. He wants to de deceive you and distort you and to keep you in chains. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We are wrestling against spiritual forces in the heavenly places that hate Jesus' guts, and they hate our guts too. 
And folks, I don't know, I don't know what unites people, but at least historically, I can tell you what unites people. When other nations attack a group of people, they finally say, whatever squabbles we had, we put those aside because we got bigger problems and we need to be focusing our attention on those. There are people in the city who are bound up in the chains of sin and desperation while Christians argue. We are called to be missional, relational people. That's what matters. That's of first importance. That Christ Jesus died for sinners. Get that first. The last thing is that we're called to be incarnational. What do I mean by that? Jesus is the high transcendent one who became incredibly eminent among us. And here's the point. What are we told? Your life is hidden in Christ. We are raised with Christ. We have been lifted up where Christ is. And yet, last time I checked, we're all right here as well. And so we're supposed to basically be those who exalt Christ in our behavior and say, He is our God. He is not like us. He is other than us. He is everything we're not. And He became one of us to walk among us, to be like us, and to endure all the things that we've endured. And do you understand that that should have an embodiment in God's people? That we care about people. We care about others. We love God so much that we're standing in His strength that we can reach out and touch people who seem untouchable. Who seem foul to us either by their outward smell or by their inward life and character. We are to care about them. Not because it's easy but because we really do believe that Jesus has changed us. And that just like the lepers of old when Jesus touched them, just like the woman with the hemorrhage that Jesus touched and she was changed, just like Jairus' daughter who was raised from the dead, you cannot say everything's back to status quo. It can't be. You've met Jesus. Nothing can be the same. He calls us out. We cannot live in fear. That's what this text is drawing us to. That we have real power. That we have a real purpose. And that we have a real enemy that God has called us to stand against so that people might be called out of darkness into His marvelous light. That they might be set free from the bondage of sin and death. Christ has called us on that mission. If we don't do it, who will? That's our call. We have a great hope. May God continue to press us out by His grace and favor. Amen.